I'm so excited to be able to teach you out of the book of Colossians today because we get to talk about the mystery of God. One of the, one of the rules about being a, uh, a Bible teacher is when you read the text, particularly if you're only doing eight or ten uh, verses out of the text, and a phrase like the mystery of God is mentioned twice in that short window, you probably should focus in on that. So that's what we're going to do here today. We're going to talk about the mystery of God that Paul says impacts this church. But before we do that, if you would join me in praying, I would really love for God to meet us here this morning, and I need his help. So if you could pray with me, that would be great. God, we thank you so much for this amazing morning, for this Mother's Day. God, thank you for the gift of moms, moms who love and care uh, sacrificially, who give so much of themselves. God, we're thankful. You give so many good gifts. God, we uh, today ask you to give us another one, to give us the gift of understanding and transformation, which we experience when we sit under the preached word. God, I pray that you would give me the gift of preaching, that the Spirit would move through the preparation that I've done to, so that we could hear you clearly and that it would transform us. God, thank you for what we get to walk through today, the mystery of God revealed in your children. We pray that you would meet us here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to get here into the book of Colossians. We're in our third week in this study. I know for the last couple of weeks, Paul's given you a little bit of a run-up on what this church is and what this letter is. Uh, but I'm going to try to give us a little more context as well, which I think is really helpful. You have to remember, this letter is being written from the Apostle Paul uh, in approximately 60 AD. So you're talking about in the neighborhood of 25 or 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul, as he writes this letter, is actually in jail. He's imprisoned in the town of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus is a city which Paul came to visit and to preach the gospel, particularly in the synagogues there in uh, Ephesus. He was there for about three years, and he's been imprisoned because of his preaching. And it's there in uh, prison that we get this letter that he writes to this place in Colossae. This letter is written to this church because of a man named Epaphras. Epaphras came to Ephesus and learned of Jesus and the gospel from the preaching of Paul, but Ephesus is not his hometown. He's from a little hick village about 150 miles up the Lycus River Valley, a place called Colossae. What Paul finds after he talks to Epaphras is this amazing thing. He's been laboring in this influential town of Ephesus, this city, uh, which is on the western coast of Turkey where the Lycus River pours out into the Mediterranean Sea. What he's learned from Epaphras is that the gospel is taking roots in all of these small little towns that are up the river valley, about 150 miles as you can see here, I found this great, that's not actually a picture of the Lycus River Valley, but it gives you an idea what we're going for here, right? So what you have is you have a river, uh, and right next to it was a Roman road because water brought people, trade, and influence. And this road went up the river valley, and there at the head of the valley, you have a trio of three towns, Heropolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. Of those three, all of which are mentioned in our uh, letter in Colossians, uh, Colossae is actually the smallest and least significant one. Laodicea is really well known, uh, as, as well as Heropolis in the uh, historical record. We have some information about them. Laodicea, in particular, 
has been archaeologically unearthed, and we know a lot about that city. Colossae has had no architectural work done on it. There's a giant hill. When I was looking to find out what do we know, there's a giant hill covered in grass, and they say, boy, if we could get some archaeologists, we'd start there. That's as much as we have. Uh, They estimate there was probably about 10,000 people that lived in this region. It's uh, about 12 miles further up the river valley from Laodicea. It was very insignificant, although we do know that there was a large Jewish contingency there because the historic record says that there was a temple tax collected in Colossae, which means they had a significant amount of Jews living there that they would have recorded we collected money from them people, okay? So that's kind of the picture that we have. We have this little town. Paul gets word from someone that he converted to following Jesus and is being discipled by Paul that he went home and told people this good news, and a church has started in that place and in the neighboring towns. If you go up the adjacent river valley that's right around the corner, you end up in a place called Philadelphia, which also is mentioned in the book of Revelation, another place where the gospel has taken root. These little, I need to, I want, it's really important for me to give you a picture of what we're talking about here because Epaphras goes into town and he, t- he spreads the good news of the gospel and the church at this point, we don't have hard numbers, but we can make estimates. It's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 25, 30, 40, people all in in the church in Colossae. They're meeting in people's homes and they're following Jesus. This is what historians tell us about this area. The Lycus Valley does seem to have been a melting pot of various religions, philosophies, and systems of magic facilitating all kinds of syncretism. And you go, oh boy, that's helpful. What does syncretism mean? It's a good question. We're going to talk about that. But, but what we need to understand is that this part of the world living on a Roman road in a fairly uneducated rural agrarian society was under the influence of all kinds of voices that were coming through over and over over time. And they were depositing bits of their religion and their philosophy and their magic systems into the thinking of the people who live in this town. That's important for us because we need to talk about syncretism. Syncretism Uh, is the combining of different religions, cultures, and schools of thought. It's synchronizing ideas. It's bringing ideas together to create a new kind of idea. You can see the picture that I've chosen here, which I assume is coffee and milk being mixed together, although I don't know why it's in that glass. If you drink coffee like that, God be with you. Um, But I think that's what it is, and the idea is you have the dark coffee and the white milk in the pitcher, but when you pour them together, they intermix and become inseparable and something new and yet made up of both of them. This is important because syncretism, I need to be cleared, is not just something that plagues Colossae. Syncretism is something that plagues Christians everywhere they've ever existed. We live and they lived in a culture that has influences Ways of thinking, ways of living, ways of being, assumed truth and assumed realities that we pour into our version of Christianity and become hard to separate. Now, it's hard for us to see it in our context because it's normal to us. But when we look back through history for 2,000 years, we can easily see, ah, I see where it looks strange in your version. And what Paul is addressing here is how syncretism is threatening the gospel in this tiny place. Okay? Does that make sense? 
So Paul gets word from Epaphras. Epaphras comes back to tell Paul the exciting news of what has happened because the last time he left Paul, he was teaching forcefully in the synagogues and in the streets about Jesus. And when he comes back to town, Paul's not around. Where is he? He's in jail. So Epaphras goes to him and he explains the incredible news that the gospel has taken root in this small little town and in the towns nearby. There's faithful Jesus followers in this place, but we got some problems. There's a lot of influences that are coming into the church. They're hearing a lot of people. You have this group of believers, and you have, anytime you have a group like that that is gathered together, what you have is people in authority coming in and say, that's great, let me tell you about some secrets you don't know about that you can only access by listening to me and my voice. And they start to be influenced. I love Colossians. I love Colossians because it's a brief letter that really summarizes the beauty of the gospel. I love Colossians because what we get in Colossians is, is what I would view as a distillation of what Paul thinks is important for a brand new burgeoning Christian community to know. He's never met these people. He's never visited their town. He's never taught them directly. And now he has a chance in this letter to give them what he thinks is of the utmost importance. I'm a dad of uh, two. We have two boys, 14 and 10. And one of the things uh, as a dad that I've been planning ever since we knew we were going to start having kids was a list of movies that eventually I'd have to watch with them. It started when uh, Asher was four and we watched Star Wars. Uh, start on the right foot. And, and there's just, I just have like a, it's not formal. It's not like I have a binder somewhere, but I, in my head, I've kind of got a list of like, when he gets to be about the right age, boom, I'm going to hit him with this one. And then we got to watch that one and classics that I grew up with that he needs to be able to experience. Uh, last weekend, we did this. We had uh, the opportunity, my wife and I, to watch one of these classics with my son. Now, depending on your age, you may go, wait, that's a classic? It's a classic. Stick with me. We watched the sixth sense. Yeah, the sixth sense. It was a little scary, so he had to wait until he was a little bit older to be able to watch it. Uh, and he's at the perfect age where he thinks he likes scary movies, but he's never actually seen any scary movies. So I really want to see something scary. I said, well, I got something for you. Now, here's the thing. I don't know what the statute of limitations are on spoilers, but because of the experience I just had last weekend, I'm not spoiling anything. So if you've never seen it, you should go watch the sixth sense. I'll give you just a hair of a spoiler. Something amazing happens at the end that requests that we rethink everything we thought we knew. And watching the movie with him, I, it had been a long time since I'd actually seen it. It's become kind of like a, it's woven into our culture. We've syncretized it into our culture. Uh, I'm, I'm watching it with like glee because I'm seeing all the seeds that seem so, like how in the world did I not interpret this right the first time? It's so obvious. It's everywhere. And, I, and I'm sitting next to Asher, like, internally giggling with glee because every time something happens and I'm just waiting for this moment to come and then it comes and I look at him and his mouth is hanging open and I was like, they got you, didn't they? And it worked. And, and the Apostle Paul, he, in this letter, is particularly in the section that we're in today, what he's encouraging this church to do is to rethink everything that they know, to redetermine and re-narrate the stories of their lives and of history in light of what's been revealed. They're going to have to have a sixth sense moment. 
This is how he starts out. He says, now I, Paul, rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, right? This church is saying, wait a second, we sent our guy back. You were this teacher who was telling us about the transcendent risen Lord of the universe. And when we show up, you're in prison? That doesn't make sense. Paul says, let me help you rethink everything. I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. What I'm experiencing in prison, I count as, I rejoice in this suffering because it's the job that I've been giving and I'm participating in something. Right off the bat, this leads to a little tension. Maybe, it, maybe you don't feel it, but this is what I felt. What is he talking about? Because it seems to me on the face of it that Paul's saying Jesus' crucifixion and death wasn't sufficient to take care of everything. And that's really not what he's saying. What you have to do is to dig a little bit into the kind of common thought of Jewish thinking right now, Paul's contemporaries. I came across a quote uh, from a first century Jewish philosopher that would have been one of Paul's kind of contemporaries at this time. And he's talking about how will God reveal the end of the story when he becomes victorious? And this is what he says about it. He says, for he, that's God, has weighed the age in the balance. The old age has been weighed and measured the times by measured and he numbered the times by number and he will not move, he will not bring about the end of the story until that measure is fulfilled. So there was a common belief that God had a plan for how he was gonna unfold history and that Paul, in his participation in the suffering of Jesus, was adding to that number that was required for the end of the story to come. Paul was saying, I'm inviting you to re-narrate your participation in God's mission. Paul's saying that my suffering is no longer just an injustice or an unfairness. It is actually active participation in God unfolding history in the world. And I'm participating in it, and I'm inviting you to participate too. Now, that's a good thought, but when you're in prison, if I want to have a credible call to rethink everything and redetermine how I process these things, it better come with some good, or, uh, some good backing behind it. This is what Paul says. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you, the church, the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Why is he talking about the story of the Bible as a mystery hidden in God? Well, it's because of the syncretism that we're talking about that Colossian, the Colossian church was experienced. What was going on, they, li they lived in what you would consider kind of a backwater part of the world. It was very superstitious. It was influenced by angels, spirits, demons, gods, and you were constantly working to try to figure out how to appease everyone who had power over your life. And people in power would use manipulation of fear to tell people that if you didn't do this, if you didn't live this way, if you didn't honor this God, if you didn't keep this festival, if you ate the wrong food, if you practiced the wrong things, the gods would be displeased and they would curse you. People lived in fear. And in the wake of that fear, leaders could come in and say, I know the mystery behind these things you can't understand. Come to me, 
and I'll show you how to live to show you the mystery that makes sense of the world. That was what they were offering. And Paul is saying, if you want a mystery, have I got one for you. You're participating in it. This is the mystery of God that for generations and ages, the world has sought to understand and to see. And you know it. It's been disclosed to the Lord's people. So the question that we have to ask is, well, what is that mystery? What is the mystery of God that he's talking about? Paul texted me last night and he said, how are you feeling? Which is code for, please tell me that you're prepared to teach tomorrow. (laughs) And I said, I'm actually feeling really great. I mean, when I get to preach the story of God saving the world, it's a good day. I hope you feel the same when I tell it to you. So here we go. Here's here's what the scriptures tell us. Number one, it says that there is a spiritual realm, a other place, a place of holiness, which is the dwelling place and the home of God. It's heaven. And then there's the world that God created. And that world has been polluted through rebellion and sin. It's where humanity live. It's it's where the, it is the domain of darkness, which is what Paul has just said a couple verses ago in this text. But the scriptures of Israel tell an incredible story that the presence of God overlaps with our world in a very specific place, in a very specific time. Here's here's from Exodus when Moses approaches a burning bush in the desert and a voice from the bush says this to him, don't come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. This is the place where God's world and your world overlap and you better be careful because this is serious business. God himself is here. Now in the story of Israel, what we see is that that theme of God dwelling in his people is repeated over and over in multiple ways. Number one, in the Garden of Eden when God, God walks with them. Number two, in the tabernacle where they make a tent and carry it around in the desert and set it up so that God has a place to dwell in their midst. Eventually, once they're a nation, they build a massive temple on the top of the highest hill of their capital city. And in the middle of it is the place where God dwells with his people. It is this tiny pinpoint location on earth where heaven and earth are the same place. And in that place, God dwells with his people. Now, the story of Israel is that God's people housed God's home. Israel was the place that had been gifted through God's love and grace towards them, a place to call God's home in their midst, the temple. Which is great, except for this thing. Israel's very small. They're insignificant on the world stage. They claim, that God, they claim this incredible reality. The God of all of the universe lives in a house on our hill. And all of their neighbor go, neighbors go, Well, I would expect you to be a little more significant and powerful and wealthy than you actually are if that is true. Because every, here's the thing, like we think this is a unique claim. Every people group believed something similar to this about their God. Their God lives with us. Their their God is in our house. And when we go to war with you, Sherry, we'll determine whose God's better by who ends up beat up. And Israel was on the losing end of many, many, many battles. (laughs) So it really created tension of this claim that God of the universe lives in our house. And the prophets in Israel's tradition would say all the time, there will come a day when God will bring about the end of this age and he will reveal himself to the world and all of the nations who have scoffed for all these years will acknowledge that he is the true God, the creator of the universe, and they will come 
to the holy hill in Jerusalem. They will come to the temple. They will offer their worship to Yahweh. Now, the mystery was, how is that going to happen? When is it going to happen? And who's going to be in charge to bring it about? That was the debate within Israel. They had been studying and looking into this forever. How is this going to happen? Who will be the king that will bring a mighty warrior nation to overcome the world? That's the real question. And something incredibly surprising happens. Jesus, the image of God, God himself comes and walks among that nation. Wow, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What a surprising turn of events. I can't believe God is with us. We're so thankful. No, they killed him. And in in his death, he's reenacting the story of Israel. They didn't know they were participating in this reenactment, but this is what was happening. He died on the weekend of the festival of the Passover when a lamb was slain and its blood protected from the wrath of God, God's people who put their faith in it. And they were delivered from their slavery through this act. And Jesus on the cross, when he is killed, delivers his people from their slavery and they are protected from the wrath of God. Now you say, well, that makes it a little complicated because now the king God is dead. No, no. In fact, what we see just a couple days later is that the greatest enemy, the greatest fear builder in humanity, death, is defeated itself. When Jesus rises from the grave in the empty tomb, it's actually 1 Corinthians, not John, but 1 Corinthians says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The greatest weapon that you could have fashioned against us was death, and Jesus defeats it, and he turns the page and he ushers in a new era and he takes time in his resurrection about 40 days he spends with his disciples explaining how the, all this went they're re-watching the sixth sense let me tell you what happened and how see that part that was see it was right there and he spends over a month describing this to them laying it out for them and then he ascends to heaven and he says i need you to wait because i'm sending power from on high for the mission And what we see there in Pentecost, which is at the very beginning of uh, Acts, is that the Spirit of God, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind from heaven, comes upon the people. This is a moment that was prophesied by the prophets of Israel, that someday the Spirit of God would invade the earth. Here's what what we don't realize. Oftentimes we will talk about Jesus' death on Pentecost, the Passover weekend, but what we don't often talk about is what the Pentecost festival was. The Pentecost festival was a festival of the harvest. It was a symbol to Israel that all of your hard work has come to fruition and now the harvest time is here. That's significant because when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, it is a signal that no longer will the good news of who God is be contained to Israel. The harvest time is here. This is the mystery of God revealed. And what we see now is a new era, an era in which Israel is not the sole provider and holder of the truth that Yahweh is king. The Gentiles are included. Now, you just have to remember, like, you have the Jews, we're going to symbolically say this big, and you have the Gentiles, which is everyone else. This is a massive transformation. 
This is what Jesus said about this moment. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. This is the mystery that the Spirit of God now dwells among his people, and as the gospel goes out to all of these little communities spread all around the region, temples begin to spring up in these places. You say, wait, so they built temples? No, this is what Paul says about it. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Paul says the mystery of God has been revealed and he's chosen to reveal it in you, the Gentiles, and he's saying it not to some massive influential church. He's saying it to a small community of 25, 35 people meeting in some house, scared about what it all means. He's saying, if you want mystery, if you want hidden knowledge, if you want to be shown the secrets that make sense of the universe, you've already got it, buddy. God himself dwells among you. You are his temple. It's no longer held to a building that sits on a hill somewhere. It's you. And wherever two or more are gathered, Jesus is amongst you. This is the incredible mystery of the gospel. This is what Paul says to them, the church, to you. God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery of God has been revealed. You are God's temple. God is ushering in the new world by dwelling among his people. It's an incredible reality. And if it's true, then I can reinterpret everything that happens in my life, my mission, and the things that happen through this lens. And that's what Paul says he's doing. As he's in prison, no, this is, I'm participating in revealing the mystery of God to you people. He, I can imagine how much his mind is blown that this small community that he's never met, 150 miles up the river, has a faithful Jesus community. And the town next to it. And the town next to it. And the town next to it. The gospel is spreading. The things that Paul is claiming are true are happening. The spirit is moving. People are being saved and they're gathering together as a new humanity in each place that they've gathered. It's an incredible thing. I I, I was thinking about the joy that Paul must have felt hearing from Epaphras the faithfulness of these Christians in this place, small and as insignificant as they are. And then I imagined me teaching you this morning and thought, what would he think if we came to him in prison and said, hey, just so you know, that letter you're writing to them 2,000 years from now in a place called Gilbert, Arizona, We're going to be talking about it because that mystery of God is still going to be unfolding all over the world. This is an incredible thing. He understands the instinct to want to know the secrets of the universe. He gets it. And he says, well, I've got good news. You're participating in it. So he says, he's the one we proclaim, Jesus admonishing and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I, Paul, strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Everything in my life now is oriented around this truth. I am working out my life to bring this mystery to bear in you so that you may have all wisdom and grow in maturity in Christ. That's his goal. And I need to focus in on this first statement. He is the one we proclaim. 
we, ha- we have to wrestle with the fact that we live in a syncretic world. And as Christians, we do not get to opt out of that system. There are all kinds of influences and sways that we have that tell us how we should feel, express, talk about what we should be frustrated with, what we should be angry about. The influence is constantly there to proclaim a different reality. I want to ask you and challenge you, do we follow in the footsteps of Paul? Is he the one we proclaim? In all stories, in all tensions, in all places, do we proclaim Jesus and the mystery of God revealed in his people? Or do we proclaim other truth, other wisdom, other knowledge, other logic? I don't know what you're doing. I'll just confess myself. There are many times when I am tempted and I know I engage in proclaiming something other than Christ. I have good news for you. If that's you, you're in good company, A, me. (laughs) B, you have a gracious God who still wants to include you in the the unfolding of the mystery of God in the world, which is the gospel among his people. So repent and turn back and proclaim Jesus. This is, this is what Paul says. He's the one we proclaim because he wants to provide every, he wants to teach and admonish everyone in all wisdom. That's what he says. This is the world we live in. I like to say that we like to wisdom hunt. Everyone is on a hunt for the truth, on the hunt for what's real and a hunt for what's true. There's a quote here from Isaac Asimov, who's a 60s sci-fi writer. Um, This is what he says, the the saddest aspect of life right now is that science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. There might be some truth to that, but but the reason I include that quote is because it assumes that science has the ability to gather all of the knowledge it needs, and if society could just pull itself together, it would apply that in a wise way. Wisdom and knowledge are both human endeavors from this perspective. And if we could just figure it out, if science could uncode it and humanity could apply it wisely, we would live in a utopia where everything is right. Maybe you're a real uh, believing and optimistic and naive soul, and you think that's still true. Experience tells me that we have a really long and really poor track record at this. But good news, Proverbs tells us the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. That we do have a fount of the knowledge that science is trying to peer into, it's God. He's the originator and the giver of all laws and structure that we're trying to understand. And he's also the one that has the wisdom to apply it and to understand how to use it. And so therefore, if we have access to that, then we should be leaning into that reality. Keep in mind, I'm not saying reject science and I'm not saying reject wisdom. I'm saying that it needs to be filtered through the God who is the fount of all knowledge and wisdom. This is what Paul says, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have never met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
What Paul says is that his goal here, the reason he's fighting so hard is that so everyone can be encouraged in heart and united in love. Because in their encouragement and uniting in love, they will have the opportunity to fully understand the mystery of God revealed. What that means is, if me understanding the mystery of God fully revealed requires me to be encouraged in heart and united in love with you, then you hold some part of the mystery of God that I need to be revealed to me. That our dwelling together, that our striving together, that our unity together somehow more fully brings about an understanding of the mystery of God, of God revealed in his people. That's what Paul says. I'm fighting for this. So you'll be encouraged and you'll stay united in love. Because when you do that, you will come to a, what does he say? Uh, jump back. He says, so that you can come to a complete understanding of the mystery of God. Being united in love being encouraged in heart, being together as God's people in this place is not an optional under, for understanding the gospel. He says that full understanding comes when we are together and united because some piece of this mystery exists in you and in me and together it can be more fully revealed and we can grow into maturity. That's what Paul is saying to this church. It's why it's so important for him that these small churches stay together. That he doesn't say, it doesn't really matter if you gather. It doesn't really matter if you meet together. After all, you've had an individual conversion experience and faith in Jesus, and that's all you need. That's not what he says. He says we need to fight together to stay united so that the mystery of God can be more fully revealed to us so that we can grow in maturity to be the people that God has us to be. A kind of people that reveal the mystery of God to the world. And then he says, here's why this is so important to me. This is what Paul wraps up our section here. I tell you so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Paul says the entire purpose of him emphasizing that the mystery of God is being revealed in this tiny little church in the middle of nowhere is so that they won't be deceived by fine arguments that distract them from the heart of the gospel. I love that he calls them fine-sounding arguments. It's a very like generous way to talk about it. He doesn't say stupid arguments. It's probably the way I would do it. I don't want you to be deceived by dumb arguments. They're all over the place. He says these are fine-sounding arguments. And that confronts something in us. It should confront something in us. If we live in a sa the same kind of world that is encouraged to be syncretic about our faith, that we pour all kinds of cultural influences and wisdom and knowledge and secret understanding together into our version of what we're trying to do here, then we have to be able to say, what do fine-sounding arguments sound like? This is what it says. Many arguments can promise insight, secret knowledge, and sound convincing, but be outside of the wisdom and knowledge of Christ. Many arguments... You might, even, you might even say, I wouldn't be so bold, I wrote the slide. You might say most arguments can promise insight, but at least many. And Paul says this church is going to hear all kinds of fine arguments about what they need to complete them, about what they need to understand that's behind the scenes. 
I'm just telling you that in my own heart, this is the stress I feel living in our world. There are so many voices telling me the secret code to understanding the world. If, I, if you just could read this blog post, if you just read this article, if you just listened to this podcast, if you just read this book, if you just subscribe to this political ideology, if you just practice these things, you would really understand what's going on. In particular, if I had to say what kind of syncretism do I see in us, it's this idea of secret knowledge. Conspiracy is everywhere. And if you can turn to the right frequency, you can peer behind the curtain and see what's really going on and really have a full understanding. Now, here's the thing. I suppose I could try to start a podcast that dealt with each one of those things one by one, week by week, and talk about them individually, but that seems fairly inefficient, and it's me doing it alone. Instead, what I want to give you as we wrap up here is a grid in which all of these fine-sounding arguments should be filtered through. Whenever you hear the political right or the political left tell you the way to process the world, here's a grid you should be looking at. Whether the culture creators or the culture critiquers are telling you what to think, here's the grid that you're going to use. Okay? I like, I like the, you guys feeling it? You want to know what it is? Because this is the secret right here. I made it real small so you'd have to squint and pay attention. <laughs> Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatian church, he, he expands on this idea that we just read about a few verses ago in Colossians where he says that you as the church have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness to, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the sun. Right? He says, this is the reality. If you are engaged in the mystery, if the Holy Spirit is among you, if you've shown faith in Jesus, then you've been transferred from one world to another. And in Galatians, he explains to us, what does it look like to live in that world versus this one? And this is what he says. In the domain of darkness, we see the articulation of this. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy. And then he says, if you're living in that kingdom of the beloved son, you will live by the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of the spirit will look like this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So there you go. There's the magical grid. How do I know if that fine-sounding argument is the argument that I should be leaning into? Look at the argumentator people. That wasn't the right way to say it, but you, the arguers, is that the right way to say it? Is their argument producing the domain of darkness kind of fruit or the kingdom of the beloved son kind of fruit? Do you hear the people? Now, we need to be very careful because it's very easy for us to say, yes, they do that. The reality is they do that. And we are encouraged to participate with it. And I'm not, I'm not using this in an accusatory way towards you at all. I'm talking to you about what my own heart is tempted toward. When I feel like I have my hands on what is right and just, the most natural thing in the world for me is to pick up the weapons of the top to go to work. I know how to do it. I've got practice in it. And everyone around me in the world demonstrates how effective it seems like it can be. If you yell loud, if you 
promote anger and jealousy and division and disunity, it feels like you're really standing on something meaningful. It really feels like you're making a difference. That's the appeal of the fine-sounding argument. It's going to give you a window into something that's real. And Paul says, don't you dare. If you're in the church, you've experienced the most real thing that's ever been revealed. It's the mystery of God revealed since the beginning of time. People for generations and eons have longed to see what's been revealed to you. That God dwells in your midst. And then he's on a mission to spread that good news to the world through you as you demonstrate together in unity and love these bottom things. That doesn't mean you don't have to have opinions. That doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you can't speak up. It means that when you do, it better look like the bottom. It better look like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's what we're asked to be. That's right. You guys just keep going. That's right. They thought that we were almost wrapping up. You're getting me going. The, re- the reality is that if we are going to live into that reality that God has made his home amongst his people, then the validating truth of whether that is real or not is demonstrated to the world when we live in a radically strange way. And the radically strange way that you're encouraged to live in is to be united in love and to live like the bottom. And I'm just telling you, if that's what strangest looks like, sign me up. I'll be the weirdest guy here. Now, maybe you're like me and you go, man, I'm bad at that. I really struggle with that. I fall into that other category all the time. Good news. You serve a God who is gracious. And he's forgiven you and he'll forgive you again. And he asks you to return to him in goodness so that he can turn you into this kind of people. That's who we're calling you to be here I'm not calling you to something I don't want to be. I'm calling you to something I want to strive for. And what Paul says here is that I need you to be encouraged in heart and united in love so that I can grow in maturity. So I'm doing this selfishly. I'm encouraging you selfishly because I want to be mature in Christ. I want to be transformed into this person. I hope you feel the same way. We need each other to do it. We need to avoid the tools of the enemy. That's the kingdom of darkness. Kingdom of the beloved son is a beautiful place and you're invited. God's doing miracles right here in this place in Gilbert, Arizona. And it's good. Let's pray that God would help us to be faithful. God, we thank you so much for the mystery that you have revealed in your church. God, the mystery that you revealed in my own heart that you have brought about a new world in which sin and death is dealt with. God, you are the victor. God, Jesus is our wisdom. He is our understanding. He is the one we love and serve. He is the one we proclaim. Help us to make that true. God, let us proclaim his goodness over and over in our lives. God, we want to see this mystery, the mystery of God revealed to those who have not seen it yet. We know we do that by loving each other and by being faithful to the story that is true. You have come, you have rescued, and you have called us out. God, transform us by your spirit. 
meet us here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.